This lesson today is the introduction to this series of lessons. And this series of lessons on what made Jesus angry. What made Jesus mad and what can we learn from it? Which we will follow by a series of lessons. What made Jesus happy? What brought Jesus joy? And as we look at these two series of lessons, we'll learn a lot about Jesus. And we'll learn a lot about the people he's calling us to be. But for this morning, I want to introduce this topic by giving you four points. And here they are. I'm going to tell you right up front so you can start ticking them off so that you'll know when we're about to be done. And some of you enjoy that very much. So the clock has started. Here we go. First, we need to establish that Jesus did, in fact, get angry. We need to establish first that Jesus did in fact get angry. Second, we need to understand that anger is not necessarily wrong. Anger is not necessarily wrong. Third, we need to take a look at um, toward whom was this anger directed? Who did Jesus get angry at? And fourth, what did Jesus get angry at them about? What was the cause, the source of his, of his anger? I got to tell you before I go any further that I am greatly indebted to, uh, to the, the work of Tim Harlow, who has written extensively on this subject and an author I recommend highly. You've seen it. I've seen it. It's on fridge magnets. It's, um, it's on bumper stickers. It's the subject of internet memes. I say it sometimes. I don't normally say it in earshot of Sue Darby, but I do say it sometimes, and you do too. And it goes like this. If mama ain't happy, how does it end? Ain't nobody happy. You guys know it. You use it too. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. We've talked about that. We've used that. We've laughed about that. But in this first of this series of lessons, I'm going to make a little twist on that, and it's going to be this. If Jesus ain't happy. If Jesus ain't happy, his church shouldn't be either. If Jesus ain't happy, there's something for us to notice. If Jesus ain't happy, there's something from, uh, for us to learn. I've already mentioned it, but you can learn a lot about a person from what they don't like. You can learn a lot about a person from what makes them angry, what upsets them. And we're trying to be more like Jesus. I mean, that's our goal. Our goal here is to be transformed over into the image of Jesus Christ. And so what that's going to mean is that we find ourselves more and more liking the things that he liked, doing the things that he did, saying the things that he said, celebrating the things that he celebrated, and by extension, being upset at the things that he got upset about. So let's jump in here first. Did Jesus get angry? He did. Can we all just agree that that's true? Jesus did get angry. You don't call people vipers and snakes, tell them they're going to hell, toss over their tables, chase them around with whips because you're channeling your inner Mr. Rogers. You just don't. There's an anger there that is genuine and real and undeniable. He did get mad. He did, and, in, and sometimes in very extreme ways. Now, it's interesting because I've heard a lot of people try to explain this away. I've heard a lot of people get really uncomfortable with the idea of Jesus being angry. And so they say, well, you know, it's, it's a translation thing and, and it really wasn't like that. In our translation, it looks a lot worse. 
you know, guys, it really it's translated pretty well. He was hopping mad. Uh, but then some will say, well, you know, it, it's not really anger because it's righteous indignation. Well, yes, and let's be honest, guys. What is righteous indignation? It's not joyful celebration. It's anger. And so, yeah, it's pretty clear. We just need to get our brains around it. We just need to go ahead and accept the fact that Jesus got mad, Jesus got hopping mad, Jesus got yelling mad, Jesus got name-calling mad, Jesus got table-turning mad, Jesus got whip-chasing mad. He got mad. And he's not always that pale Galilean. Second point, isn't anger wrong? I thought Jesus didn't sin. If Jesus got angry, how can he get angry if he never sinned? I mean, he, he lost his temper, he called names. How is this not sin? How is anger not sin? Well, we won't turn there, but if you want to look in Philipp Ephesians chapter uh, 4, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, in your anger do not sin. Notice that. He doesn't say your anger is sin. He says, in your anger, when you get angry, when you experience anger, when anger is, is the emotion that you're most readily identifying within you, don't sin. But the anger itself is not the sin. There is a way that we can be angry and not sin. Paul tells the Ephesian church that and Jesus demonstrates it in his life. Now, let me caution us. There's a couple of things here that we need to recognize. I believe, and I know you believe, and we all accept it as true, that anger can lead us into sin. Paul wouldn't write it otherwise. He wouldn't warn us about it if it weren't something that were substantially uh, potential to happen. James, in James chapter 1 and verse 19, James said famously, be slow to anger, be careful in your anger. Why? Because it can lead to all kinds of terrible sins. And it can. Jesus himself talked about how many things are terrible. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 22, he talks about angry and hateful and vengeful words and how that's equated even with murder. It is substantially evil, some of the things that we do in our anger. But that doesn't mean that the experience of anger is sin. It doesn't even mean that every expression of anger is sin. But let me also caution us one more time. Jesus had a much better sense of control over these things than we do. And we need not take this as license that we can go shooting off at the mouth or popping off at everything, losing our cool, because Jesus did. I think we would all be wise to recognize he is and we are not. So, is it sin to experience anger? No. Is it sin to express anger? No. Jesus did it, and he taught us how to do it properly. And in these lessons, we'll look very deeply at how to do it properly. But for this morning, we're just setting the table. Point three. Who was the target of this anger? Who was the target of this anger? I'll just give you a little side note here. As I've been getting through these lessons this week, and I've been working through this one specifically and looking ahead to lessons that were going to be coming up, one of the things that kept coming back to me is the reality that I make Jesus angry. That I am in the camp 
of those people to whom Jesus, when he was here on the earth, directed his anger. I have long shared with you that one of my common pictures of God is the cosmic facepalm. Because I've told you that this is the common way that God must deal with me. Jeff. I know there are so many times in the course of my everyday life that God just looks and goes, oh, Jeff, the cosmic facepalm. And I've added to that this week that I'm believing more and more that he shares the cosmic fist shake. Jeff. I am among those. And if you're not careful, you might find that you are too. So who in Jesus' ministry was on the receiving end of this anger? You know, you don't have to twist your minds too far back. Think a little bit about Jesus and his life. Think about his ministry. Think about the people with whom he bumped elbows and rubbed shoulders on a daily basis. And it's not hard to imagine why he would get mad, right? Because we know who it is that he associated with. Let's start here. The prostitutes. I mean, seriously. The prostitutes. Flaunting their bodies around scandalously, parading their wares in these brash displays for lucrative, greedy income. I mean, surely this is one of them that Jesus just popped off on, right? How infuriating. Or what about the, what about the tax collectors? What about the tax collectors? I mean, these Benedict Arnolds that, that work alongside these horrible Roman occupiers and how they, they fleece the common people and, and take all the good, hard-earned money of these Jewish people who are just barely staying above the income level, that must have just really, just really ripped him. I bet he tore them up. What about that moment when he's just trying to teach and preach and he's in the temple courts and this filthy, vile woman who's caught in the very act of adultery, thrown down at his feet naked in her shameful state, having tossed away her vows made before God, completely disregarding it all, I bet he just tore her up. Wait, what? Are you sure? I'm getting a voice in my hearing aid telling me that that wasn't who he got mad at. It's not. None of those. Didn't yell, didn't scream, didn't turn over tables. Curiously, to these, he was the picture-perfect model of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. To these, he was every ounce the pale Galilean of Algernon's poem. It's weird, right? In the face of terrible sinners, Jesus is loving and gentle and kind. But if he never blew up at them, who was it that caught all of this wrath and anger of Jesus? In many ways, it was exactly the people you'd expect him to get along with the best. It was the most religious, the most scholarly, the most devout, the most dedicated to religious practice, and here, surprisingly, his best friends, the apostles, caught as much of his anger as anybody else. Well, almost anybody else. So, so let me get this right. Jesus is gentle and kind and meek and patient with the terrible sinners. Jesus, on the, as he's hanging on the cross, bleeding out the last drops of his life, 
He looks down at those soldiers that had crowned him with thorns and flayed open his back and nailed him to a tree and asked forgiveness. So who did he blow his cool with? Isaiah the prophet, way back in Isaiah 42, spoke of Jesus and how he would deal with sinners. A bruised reed he won't break. A smoldering wick he won't snuff out. So who did he lose his cool with? The religious people. Because he fulfilled another prophecy as well. In Proverbs chapter 3, it's foretold that he would come and he would mock and offend the proud. And that's exactly what he did. The religious were the source, I'm sorry, were the focus of his anger. Fourth and finally, what was the source? What was it that they did that made him mad? One of the keys to understanding what made Jesus mad falls under this big category. One of the things that almost every one of these examples has in common, if not all of these, is people who claim to be speaking on behalf of God, not speaking words of God. Or people claiming to act on behalf of God, not doing deeds of God. People who carry the name of God and do things in the name of God, but are not doing the things God once done. Jesus' apostles caught some serious, serious bullet fire one day. Because mothers were coming and they were bringing their babies for Jesus to bless, and the apostles sent them away. Get out of here. Get out of here. You're not important enough. He's got, he's got big things to do. Take your babies somewhere else. And Jesus was furious because they were acting in God's name, but they weren't acting with God's will. He blew up at the Pharisees because these Pharisees were the very ones that claimed to be and appeared to be the most close to God. But they were consistently submitting their own rules and their own regulations in place of God's command. And it made Jesus furious, acting on God's behalf, not acting in God's will. The religious people of the day, these people who claim to be serving God, but they put all these ideas around the Sabbath. And they decided it was more important to follow the Sabbath principles that they created and they, they made up then serving God and serving the people made in God's own image and his buttons were pushed. The Sadducees, the experts of the law, who claimed to teach and speak for God and they refused to hear the Son of God right in their midst, claiming to speak for God but not speaking of God's will. These are the things that made Jesus so angry. I found a cool illustration of this in an odd place. In the timeless classic by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. You'll remember that Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by three ghosts. If you're like me, you picture Mickey Mouse and, and uh, Scrooge McDuck and Goofy in, in these roles, but nonetheless. The ghost of Christmas present and Ebenezer have a conversation in that book. And in that story in this exchange, Ebenezer Scrooge looks at the ghost of Christmas present and he talks about how your people, people who you, the heavenly realm, doing things in your name, 
talking about people doing things on behalf of God, people claiming to have God's um, approval to do things, and how they're doing terrible things in the name of God. Let me just quote to you what the ghost says. He gets a little upset with him, and he gives a very feisty response. There are some upon this earth of yours who lay claim to know us and who do their deeds of passion and pride and ill will and hatred and envy and bigotry and selfishness in our name. And they are strange to us. Remember that. And charge their doings on them, not on us. Speaking in God's name, claiming God's authority, but not being about God's will, makes Jesus livid. More to the point, the specific way in which people most commonly did this was by blocking people from experiencing the love of God. The most common thing that we'll look at over and over and over again in these lessons is how people were blocked from experiencing the love of God by people claiming to do it in the name of God. Why did Jesus get so upset about the money changers in the temple? If you're familiar with this story, you know what I'm speaking of. If you're not familiar with this story, we're going to have a whole lesson on this. And so I hope you'll come back and we'll explore this deeply. But you know, I always thought it had to do with the fact that they were extorting money and they were making huge profits, and they were. But the thing I never noticed was where they set up shop. In the courts of the women, in the courts of the Gentiles, the very people who were the most uh, hungry to try to experience God's love and the ones who were the most distanced from God's love were the ones that were being blocked. These people in the name of God were blocking people from coming to know God's love. Why, in that example I just gave a minute ago, did Jesus get so mad at the apostles? Because these mothers were coming to experience the love of God and the apostles blocked the opportunity for them to experience the love of God. Those religious people who look down their noses at Jesus, he hangs out with sinners, he hangs out with prostitutes, he must be a terrible person. Why did they make him mad? Because the very people that Jesus came to demonstrate the love of God to, they were blocking from experiencing the love of God. All those Sabbath controversies. Seven different times we have miracles performed on the Sabbath. And seven different times people get upset. And Jesus is livid about their, their hard-heartedness. Why? Because these people that Jesus is healing who are deformed and diseased and they're troubled with all kinds of ailments are being blocked from experiencing the love of God by the very people who claim to be acting in God's name. Four lessons. Did Jesus get angry? Yes. Is anger necessarily wrong? No. Who did he get angry at? The religious and his friends. What was the source of his anger? People claiming God's name but not doing God's will, specifically blocking people from knowing God's love. Let me land the plane. I'm going to give you these two real quick thoughts on the door, out the door. First, if you know me at all, you know I've been ramping up for this. So you're not surprised. Who are we? 
If Jesus were to walk in here today, would he walk down this center aisle, the pale Galilean, Jesus, gentle, meek, and kind? Or would he stop in the parking lot to get his whip ready? Would he be looking for some tables to flip? Let's be honest. Who are we? I want to read something to you. This is just heartbreaking. Heartbreaking and scary. I'm just going to quote it directly from an article that I read. David Kinneman of the Barna Research Group did a research project with the goal of assessing self-identified Christians to determine if their attitudes and actions towards other people are more like Jesus or more like the Pharisees. He said, this is his quote, Our intent was to create some new discussion about intangible aspects of following and representing Jesus, end quote. They tried to identify qualities of Jesus, such as empathy, love, and faith, or the resistance to such ideals in the form of self-focused hypocrisy. So, stop right there. They did a study. Are you more like Jesus? Are you more like the Pharisees? Okay, here, here we go. Curiously, he found that 51% of Christians more identified strongly with the traits of the Pharisees, and only 14%, one out of every seven, were found to represent the actions and attitudes consistent with Jesus. 51% of Christians act more like Pharisees than Jesus. That's scary. That means that most Christians act more like the people that drove Jesus crazy than the people that Jesus enjoyed being with. That quote, resistance to empathy, love, and faith that solidified in a form of self-focused hypocrisy is a sad testimony to the state of the modern church. And my friends, we may well be the ones Jesus would be mad at. We may well be speaking for God, but not speaking God's words. We may well be acting under God's authority as we claim it and not be doing His will. We may be the ones Dickens wrote about that others have to look at and say, that's not God's. We may be the ones blocking others from knowing the love of God. So, if he walked down that aisle, how would he do it? God help us if we're angering Jesus. If Jesus ain't happy. Finally, finish with a story, quick one. This was something that I was reminded of this week in doing some reading. I have a friend that I admire very much. Uh, he and I have been friends now. I met him in 01, and we've been friends since then. He's an amazing guy. He's a super guy. Smart, personable, funny, successful. I mean, he is a, just a genuinely great guy. Years and years ago, long before I met him, when he was away in college, he uh, was on a trip in Central America with his school, and he fell down a waterfall and um, was paralyzed, lost all control of everything below his waist, and his arms and hands are 
very difficult for him to use. Very, very, very difficult situation. Restricted to a wheelchair with very little use of his upper body at all. Completely undaunted. He went on to become a really, really successful man. He's a highly successful businessman. He's an artist. He's a philanthropist. He's an advocate. He's a community leader. He's a great Christian man. Spending time with him, I came to understand a little bit of the challenges that he faces every day. I remember very early on in getting to know him, a group of us went out to the movies. You know, just a bunch of guys going to a movie, right? The amount of effort it took to do something as simple as get out a wallet and open it up and pay for a popcorn was arduous. Seeing him sit and eat that popcorn, I just thought how easy it is for me and how difficult it is for him. Realizing that I could sit in any seat in that auditorium and he had three specific locations that he could sit in nowhere else. I've ridden in his car many times. And you and I jump in, slide in, open up, uh, open up, slide in, and we drive off in 10 seconds. It's like a 15-minute ordeal for him to just get ready to use his hand controls to get out the driveway. I, I've been in his home many times. In his home, it is an amazing apparatus that he has, a metal rail that lines uh, that goes along the ceiling. It goes over his bed, it goes over his shower, it goes over his toilet. And he described to me, showed me how, when he goes to bed at night, when he gets up in the middle of the night to go to the restroom, he has to strap himself into a harness and pull himself up out of bed and, and pull himself along this rail over to the bathroom. Something that would take you and me three minutes is a 45-minute process for him. Everything in his life is so much harder. In 1990, the 101st Congress passed the Americans with Disabilities Act. We call it the ADA. And they set out to try to tear down all the obstacles they could that were keeping people who have disabilities from the things they wanted to enjoy in life. And this wonderful piece of legislation has done wonders for making the world more accessible for people like my friend. And because of things like that and because of the ways those barriers have come down, He's able to travel all around and he's able to go explore and do wonderful things and engage in life and have all kinds of benefits from the society we live in because the obstacles that make life for him already hard, now even harder, have been torn down. Jesus got mad when we put roadblocks in front of people trying to get to God. And I would suggest to you today that the church needs to be in the business of blowing up obstacles that keep people from coming to know the love of God. That should be our business. We need to enforce the legislation that Jesus came and died to be able to put into act. The ASDA, the Americans with Spiritual Disabilities Act, tearing down those roadblocks and making it possible for people to come and know the love of God. And God help us if we're the ones building the obstacles. So, let's close here. You might be here today and you might be a Christian. So what is it you should take from this lesson? What am I hoping you think of? Well, pretty simple. We're either pointing people to the love of God or we're blocking people from the love of God. We're either making it more uh, accessible or we're making it more difficult. 
were either making him happy or very angry. Second, it might be that you're not yet a Christian. How encouraging to be able to stand before you right now and be able to say, I want to introduce you to, we want to introduce you to a Savior who loved you so much that his own life was not too much to give for you. And had there been nobody else that needed it but me, he would have come for me. Probably the most famous passage of Scripture we find anywhere in Scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, and we know the beauty of that. But we also need to know the second part of that, the 17th verse that goes on to say, Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save it. And if you're not a Christian, you need to know that. He didn't come to point out your sin for the purpose of shaming you and driveling your face in it and dragging you through the mud in it. He didn't come. He didn't come from the standpoint of pointing out our sins so that he could make us give payment for it. Instead, he came to pay for it himself. He didn't demand of us what we couldn't pay, but he gave for us what only he could give. And the beautiful message that we have to share with you today is that we want you to have no obstacle between you and the love of God. A love that is so great that he sent his own son. And we want you to know that if you've never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life, you've never put him on in the waters of baptism, you've never had the forgiveness of sin that comes from the cleansing of his blood. Or if we can help you in any way, our leaders stand in the back of this room. And we'd love to pray with you, help you, study with you, be a, heart, be a part of your journey with Jesus and taking that next step. If we can do so, won't you let us know as we stand together and sing.